but it's not illegal to cross the border and ask for asylum. Talk to me about uh, Jeff Sessions here using the Bible uh, to defend this immigration policy. It's it's embarrassing, to be honest. I think everybody, if you have any compassion, I think you can feel something's off with this. And when you see politicians, especially using what we call classic uh, misapplication of scripture, uh, you just hope you get the opportunity to do this, which is tell people in case they are wondering, like, is this is this Jesus? Is this Christianity? Is this the Bible? You get to say, absolutely not. Like, this is just grade A you know, a politician trying to use the Bible to prove a point that they want, and it's it's sad, it's embarrassing. This policy and practice is unchristian. It is not consistent with Jesus of Nazareth. It is a contradiction, and it is un-American. It's legal, but they're portraying it as if it's illegal, and they have zero tolerance for law-breaking. Well, that's Alexia Salvatierra, and I'm David Andrew, and this is The Inverse Podcast, where we explore the good book, looking at ways in which it can turn our world upside down. We just wanted to say thank you for the overwhelming response that you guys have shown to our first episode with Richard Raw. We are pumped about being able to continue to bring you great content, and it's nice to know that we have people out there who want to listen to it. Also wanted to say thanks to everyone who jumped online and reviewed us on iTunes. Your support this way highlights the podcast and enables us to have this conversation about how the Bible can turn the world upside down with more and more people. So thanks, everybody. Now, the plan as advertised on the last episode of the podcast was to have Drew Hart come in and speak. But in the light of what's been happening with the immigration situation in America and families being separated from their children, we thought that it'd be important to have a conversation with Reverend Alexia Salvatierra. Reverend Alexia is a pastor, she's an author, and for the past 35 years she's been involved in community ministry, including church-based service and community development programs. She's been a national leader in areas of working poverty and immigration for over 20 years now, including co-founding the National Evangelical Immigration Table, which is a very broad coalition of evangelical leaders and institutions advocating for immigration reform. So her voice is one that we really wanted to bring to the front, because while she's not as well known as Richard Rohr, we think that she should be. And I think that you guys are going to be challenged and encouraged by what Reverend Alexia has to bring to the table. Alexia, thanks for your time. Um, and at last minute you are on the list of somebody that i wanted on the show but uh given what's going on in your country and how it relates to mine uh i really appreciate you dropping everything early in the morning and and jumping on um would you like me to introduce you as a lutheran pastor or as an organizer or as an activist trainer or i'm never sure uh with friends who wear so many different hats but they're they're all kind of the one different patches on the same hat, right? I would say that I'm a catalyst. (laughs) Yes, you are. That I'm a catalyst and and a midwife. Yeah. Uh, And and so the context in which I am a catalyst and a midwife are um, that I'm a Lutheran pastor, although I often refer to myself as Luther Costal, which (laughs) sounds like a disease, but... Um, Lutheran, Lutheran theology. I've got a bad case of Lutheran Yeah. Most people with any amount of Latinx um, heritage are Pentecostal. Uh, I've but got a friend who, who have thinks a very, charismatic. We have a very emotional relationship with our God, with exactly. everything. With our God. And then, and then, um, then I'm also a professor now. I spend a, a, quite a bit of my time as a professor. I'm an wow. affiliate at Fuller Theological Seminary, so I, 
I teach at Centro Latino. I teach at the School of Intercultural Studies, which is the admissions school. And then, um, and I teach community development, community organizing, advocacy, but from a Christian root. Part of the reason why I've rushed forward this conversation is because the parallels the last week or so in the US with what's been happening in Australia for years and years and years, particularly with uh, when we started the Love Makes Away movement, uh, there was well over a thousand children in indefinite detention, um, uh, separated from their families. Uh, that's over four years ago now, and mm -hmm. I know that this has become a reality. W would you just sketch some of that before I ask the normal inverse questions around your biography and and uh, what passage of scripture you'd like to lead us in? Sure. So. Um you need to know something about the U.S. immigration system. I always say I'm going to teach people about this incredibly complicated system in three sentences. <laughs> That's <laughs> so, why you know, I'll try. Yeah. You don't want to understand anything. Uh, our system is ineffective, illogical, and inhumane. But uh, it's it's centered on three three roads to immigration. Blood, sweat, and tears. Blood is family relationships. Sweat is an employer, an American employer, petitioning for an employee. And tears is refugee or asylum status. Refugee status is if you apply when you're in another country. Asylum status is if you apply at the border. We've had, uh, since 1948, when we signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a country, we've had a tears policy. You know, that people who are fleeing unjust violent persecution in their country as a result of their race their religion a whole list of characteristics are welcome theoretically welcome to come to our country uh you know we have a statue of liberty that says bring me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free and it, it's really centered that that's a part of our national identity is that we welcome people that are refugees um and asylees so we have a crisis in Central America, a human rights crisis of terrible proportions. Yeah. Uh, the Mara Salvatrucha is a gang, but it's actually an international mafia, and it's actually the shadow government in increasing areas of Central America. Yeah. And these are small countries, and there's literally nowhere to run. Once the Mara has you in their sights, you really have to leave the country. So we have, um, and it's mostly the Mata really targets teenagers that they forcibly recruit. Um, and they also target owners of small stores, which are mostly female. And one of the ways that, and they target them for extortion. And one of the ways that they do that is that they threaten that they will kidnap and rape and hurt their, their smaller children. So what happens is that these the teenagers and these mothers with the smaller children run for the United States. They run from Mexico, but Mexico doesn't have much of an asylum program, really. And so they run for the United States looking for asylum. Now that's not, and they're not huge numbers. You know, they're really portrayed as huge numbers, but they're, they're not huge numbers. We've had... Central American legal immigration now for many years. Um, a number of Central Americans from um, El Salvador in particular had something called TPS, which is temporary protected status because of some major national 
natural disasters. And, and then a lot of people were able to come over. They had asylum during the Civil War. You know, the U.S. was very much part of supporting the Civil War that created that first wave of refugees. And yeah. then very much through some um, unconscious, I mean, decisions with unintended consequences, very much part of fueling the modest growth. And so, you know, we have a long relationship with Central America. We've had a lot of Central American immigration. So, and Central Americans actually have contributed to the economy and culture of the United States. And I think there's a lot of recognition of that in California in particular. So, um, anyhow, over the last, since 2014, when it really began to heat up, we've had a surge of kids and then mothers. But again, we're talking several hundred thousand. We're not talking millions, right? Um, but it feels in the U.S. to the folks who feel threatened by immigration that it feels like a, an invasion, even though objectively it's not large numbers. But, anyhow, but, but there are, um, I think that they would argue that it's not large numbers because of all the ways that they've tried to discourage them. Uh, so the most recent way that they're responding is by far the most outrageous that we've ever seen. First of all, um, they're saying that they're, they're using the phrase zero tolerance. Now, zero tolerance, they're saying zero tolerance for breaking the law, and they're accusing them of felonies. But it's not illegal to cross the border and ask for asylum. <laughs> it's not. It's legal, but they're portraying it as if it's illegal, and they have zero tolerance for law breaking. That's number one. Number two, they're punishing that illegal action by separating mothers and children and putting them in separate detention and not letting them know where the other ones are. So you have no, not only are your children put in detention, but they have, you have no idea where they are. Um, and then they're also stopping or trying to stop. I think this is going to end up in court. I can't imagine that Jeff Sessions can just do this and not have it end up in court because uh, I know too many immigration judges that they're going to say that the that gang-related asylum requests are not acceptable. Anything gang-related or anything domestic violence-related, that they're going to say that those are not categories. Those categories have been gray categories, right? That they're not sufficient by itself. We've been dealing with that for a long time. So just because you watch the gang murder your sister isn't enough reason for asylum. It has to be connected some way to who you are. You know, are you a Christian? And then that's why, are you, you know? So um, are you an indigenous person? You know, so, so there's always been an additional argument that had to be made. But, but I think that there's been in certain courts an increasing recognition that the gang, quote unquote, is operating as a shadow government. And so it is traditional asylum. It's just a new form. And I think everywhere in the world we're seeing that. We're seeing these sort of shadow governments, whether it's Al-Qaeda or, you know, ISIS or whatever, we're seeing these shadow governments that really don't operate exactly like governments and yet can cause tremendous damage. So there was, there's been increasing recognition. And so Jeff Sessions is, gonna, is saying that that's no longer going to be recognized. And then they've had for a while this thing about catch and release, that actually we have the potential for non-detention forms of detaining people through bracelets, through electronic bracelets, modern technology where they can leave and live their lives while they're going through detention. They can't escape and go into the society because they're dang near impossible to get off those bracelets. So they, ha they can let families go, 
with these bracelets on. But they've been calling it catch and release as if the families were fish and saying that they don't want to practice catch and release, meaning they don't want to let people out. That they want to keep you in detention, which means you don't you can't get a lawyer, right? So you have no access to lawyers because we don't provide free lawyers. We have certain grants for lawyers, but they're not meant to provide free lawyers for everyone. And they don't. They provide free lawyers for very few people. So if you literally, if you can't get out at all, you can't find a lawyer, you can't argue your case. And so you're going to lose because you can't argue your case. So, um, so, you know, there's various ways in which they're attempting to stop the asylum process completely in Central America. Um, so the separation of the kids is just the latest way of doing that, but it, it's the, by far the cruelest way of doing it. Wow. If you hear the stories from Central America from people, they're just, oh my gosh, they're just so horrendous. Yeah. Alexia, I'm interested to hear where we um, often start is, in terms of your own story, when do you first remember encountering the Bible? Like, do, do you have any memories that kind of stick out? Uh, for you? Oh, yeah. My, my story is very different, Jared, because my family um, are not Christians. Mm. So my family are really from the anti-church movements. They're from Russia and Mexico, and they're from the anti-church movements in those wow. countries. Wow. So, yeah. So I did not encounter Christianity, really in any significant way until I was a teenager. Yeah. And I became a Christian in the Jesus movement in the yeah. 1970s. Wow. So, yeah. Incredible. And I always, I, I sometimes like to tell, uh, you know, I like to share a little bit of the story just because I think it helps people who did grow up in Christianity understand how, how really strange we are. <laughs> like you really have to understand how strange we are. Yeah. So if you want to read, on the outside so um i you know i think the the deeper sort of roots of my search was that i really when i was growing up i really saw love and power as two very separate things in the working class area that i grew up in that um people who were powerful were not very loving and people who were loving were not very powerful and um and i really thought if those were the choices i was going to be powerful because I was not willing to, to continue to be a victim. Yeah. And, uh, but I really also, the more that I got into that, the more that I realized that I really didn't like power without love, mm. that it was just dust and ashes, and that I was really hungry for another alternative. Mm. Um, so when I, I had a, a sort of an odd experience where I was on public transportation and asked the universe, Young teenager, right? <laughs> asked, asked the universe um, what, whether there was an alternative. And I looked down at my feet, and there was a small little children's Bible sitting by my feet. No way. And, and I opened it, and it opened to ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find. And it was highlighted in yellow. Wow. Oh, so, yeah. So I was really like, okay, universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, like what my mother had said about Christianity. I once asked her what the... The Trinity. My mother's very funny. And at that time, she had no formal education. She got formal education later in life. But I said, uh, Mom, Mama, I heard that there's, a, there's this thing, the Trinity. What's the Trinity? And she said, oh, it's what Christians believe. She said, it's Jesus Christ, Santa Claus, and the Easter Bunny. 
<laughs> so <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Anyhow, so, so, so I was like, what? Jesus, what? Um, but I decided that I had to check it out. You know, I mean, I had this amazing experience. I have to go check it out. So I walk into a local Catholic church just because it was the church in our community, right? Mm. So I walk in. And, okay, so there's a guy in a long dress. All right. Well, that's a little strange, but that's all right. <laughs> whatever. Uh, it, you know, it's the 70s. So it's like, whatever. So then, so then, uh, then he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So I'm like, I understand every word in that sentence, and the sentence makes no sense. <laughs> like, like, okay, first of all, since when are the sins of the world gone? They're not gone. Huh. And what does a lamb have to do with it? <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and, then, um, and then he says, eat my body and drink my blood. And no one reacts. I thought, did he just say what I just <laughs> I mean, he just said, eat my body. I'm not going to react. I thought, have I walked into a lunatic asylum? Like, where am I? In fact, they look bored. Like, how can they look bored? He's talking cannibalism. It was the absolute weirdest experience. And I, I thought, I just can't do this. Right? Wow. I don't even know what this is, but I just can't do this. Um, and so then I left, and then my, my best friend had become a Christian in evangelical church. And so I went with her. Well, maybe this is the thing. And there was a youth pastor that was a really amazing person. You know, I've never seen him as an adult. I've never met him again. But he, he challenged me to a duel. He said, you come talk to me every week. You bring me anything to read that you want me to read. I will give you things to read, and you read them. And we'll, we'll argue. Well, so we did that for about nine months. And I, you know, I read C.S. Lewis and John Stott. And, and you know, I, um, I wouldn't say that he was convincing me intellectually. Hmm. I would say that, that he was giving me a real alternative to the separation of love and power. That the story of the cross and resurrection is the story of suffering love that wins. Come on. And I, it just captured my heart. It was like, yeah. if, that has a, if that has a potential of being true, I want that. Yeah. And so I thought, well, you know, what the hell? <laughs> my, family thought I was, my family thought I had gone nuts. <laughs> they, they still sort of think that. But, they, but they're so much in favor of what I do in the world that, you know, they've sort of, now they're sort of, my parents are, are very elderly, of course. Oh. And, um, they don't have any religious faith, but my mother wishes that she did. Mm. She can see what it gives me. Well, Alexa, I think a lot of Australians are going to relate to that story. Um, it's the difference between Australia and the US. Uh, only 6% of the Australian population is regular church attending, and regular is defined mm -hmm. as more than once a month. <laughs> wow, that's so, intense. Uh, I, I think... Um, uh, when you come visit, that's like Canada, more like Canada. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you'll yeah, you'll yeah. fit right in, and your testimony um, will get a lot more amens than it sounds like it receives when when you share it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, yeah. when you first decided to follow Jesus and you had the Bible, was it something that 
turned the world upside down or was it something that affirmed the world and all that's wrong with it as it is? Oh, no, it, it was, um, I mean, I, uh, that was the second sort of, you know, if you think of a rocket launch with all of these pieces is, um, you know, I was part of a church that, that was very much about saving souls, right? Um, not about the kingdom of God. But when they put a Bible into my hands, you know, the thing was just full of, of social transformation, of justice. Yeah. Everyone looked and everywhere you looked. And so yeah. I was like, why are they not talking about this? Yeah. Like I'm reading it. They gave it to me to read it. They said it's the word of God. Everywhere I look in it, there's this thing that when I talk to the pastors about it, they just get uncomfortable. And oh, you know, like, what is that? And then, so then I went, I went to college because I became a Christian. I would never have gone to college. Uh, I was a dancer. Wow. I had been a ballerina as a kid, and then I really didn't, couldn't make it in ballet. I was the wrong height. And so then I became a dancer in musical comedy. Wow. Um, and I really, I, in shows in Los Angeles, and that's what I wanted to do in my life. Um, oh. So when I say, you know, if I... If, uh, if, we, if I didn't believe that we could win in significant small ways, you know, foretaste of the feast to come. Yeah. If, I didn't, if I didn't believe there was a feast to come uh -huh. and I didn't believe that right here and now we can have foretaste, I would be dancing. Yeah. Dancing is uh -huh. what I love. Um, so, but, I, but in the church that I was attending, they didn't believe in the kind of dancing I was doing. Wow. So, they, they, so I went to college, which I never would have gone. So thanks be to God. And in the college I went to uh, was a very progressive college. And there, there were people who actually could teach me about justice. Now, of course, the justice they were teaching me about was secular. Sure. Uh, but so I... From so was the that your introduction to Saul Alinsky? Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. All of that. So, <laughs> so from the beginning, it was really like, okay, you know, here's this Bible full of this call to justice Here's these people, but nobody in my Christian church is talking about it. And then here's these people who are all talking about justice, but they're not talking about the Christian faith. In oh. fact, they're anti-Christian. But I see that those two have to come together. So, so what was very important for me at that time, I was like hunting for evidence of where else people were bringing them together. So um, the early Sojourners movement was very important to me. Wow. Church of Our Savior. I would read yes. about those things. You know, um, Cesar Chavez's faith was very wow. important. Yeah, really yeah. Those things. Um, of course, because you're in L.A. Junior. Yeah, and so, yeah. so I would say, okay, I'm not Dorothy Day. I'm, I'm not the only, you know, I was involved with the L.A. Catholic Worker. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was like, okay, there are other people that are seeing it this way. Um, how, do, how does that fit for me? And where do I fit in the body of Christ? Since I've always been, you know, evangelical, charismatic, like, where do I fit in the body of Christ? You know, so I've always, I think that that's been a lifelong um, journey. Yeah. And struggle it's and journey. It's wonderful to hear the term evangelical. And uh, you went on to say C.S. Lewis and John Stott, because yeah. so much of how we hear the term evangelical in Australia um, is shaped by US politics and how it gets used there. Um, and 
Yeah, it, it's it's amazing to hear it actually talked about in its historical roots, not what happened after the rise of the religious right in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. And you know, for me, of course, because I'm bilingual, mm. uh, I would also talk about at the time Rene Padilla and Samuel yeah. Escobar, right? Yeah, that, yeah. you know, that, that, that those voices were not just um, white voices, yes. that were voices that were important to me. And yeah. yet, they, I, yet, I knew that they were. I mean, the whole story of Lausanne, right? The, Evan mm -hmm. the International Evangelical Conference in 1974. It was a year after I became a Christian. Right? Wow, and you went? No, oh no, oh no. I oh, wouldn't right, have right. gone. I was a kid. No, okay. I, I heard, I read about it in college, right? The wow. This part of it. And, you know, there's a great story in that conference yes. when you talk about evangelicalism before the religious right is that, you know, people were part of the homogenous church movement in, mm. in Lausanne. You know, they were pushing that. And Rene Padilla and Samuel Escobar stood up to them and talked about, a, you know, taking the, the colonialism out of Christianity. Yeah. And John Stott stood back up for Rene Padilla. That's right. Them. And yeah. so that's a beautiful story about the church really being the church. Right? It really is. And, and Billy Graham yeah. came around because of John Stott. That's how um, mm -hmm. Rene August um, told it to me, that, um, mm -hmm. which is in incredible. Given your experience, Alexia, what what gifts in your life experience um, are there for others as they read the Bible? Um, I, I was thinking as you were explaining that uh, you hadn't yet become enculturated to uh, make metaphorical that which is literal <laughs> or make oh, yeah. literal that which is metaphorical, which is what sometimes you get taught to do in churches. It's like... Yeah. Seven-day creation, that's literal. Uh, sell all you have and give to the poor, that's a metaphor. And it's like, what? <laughs> so, so, Well, I'm not sure that in a Latino context, actually, those lines are even drawn in our lives. That's why, well, in a funny way, I mean, yeah, the story right. of becoming Lutheran is a much longer story. But, but, uh, but, you know, when you talk about what is communion, right? What is Holy Communion? Uh, I loved Luther's take on it because he was like, well, Jesus is present in it. How would we know how? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, like it's an experience. It's a mystery. Yeah. So metaphor, and it's like you read it and you just trust that it's, it's speaking from the deepest wells of truth. You don't need yeah. to parse it. And That's right. you don't need to decide this is metaphor and this is not. It's much more fluid and alive than that. Huh. Um, and that's cultural. That's yeah. just how we would approach the world. That's, that's why when I say I'm evangelical, um, Dr. Marti Juan Martinez says I'm evangelica because I have no interest in boundaries. Yes. I'm only interested in the core, which wow. is the gospel. And everything else flows. Like Luther said, there's no God for me, but Christ and him crucified. And all that matters is the cross and resurrection and everything else is adiaphora. I mean, when I read Luther saying all those things, I was like, oh, yeah, he's one of us. Yeah, well. Um, or we're one of him. Or it's all the same person. But, but so I think it's very important to understand if you say, you know, what is the Bible? Is that it's this really living text. Mm. That it's our family story. It's the family of people whom, who are who are loving God and being being saved yes. by God. Yeah. And so you know we don't expect it to be infallible in the scientific sense because we're not scientific people. 
Hmm. And it sounds but like we, but we expect it to be true in sure. the deep sense because it it speaks it speaks a truth that changes your life. So it still sounds like and you're a dancer, yeah. even as a theologian and activist. There's still, <laughs> there's still the dance that um, yeah. I can hear all the way through that. That's wonderful. Um, I, I'm yeah, excited. It's like, why do you expect to understand it without the Holy Spirit? Yeah, totally. It's not made to be understood without the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is alive and well and moving, so there it is. And it, even the uh, importance of it not merely being an individual reality, but the importance mm -hmm. of family for yeah. um, uh, someone from your culture um, and mm -hmm. to talk about the, the family throughout the ages, that it's the, the story mm -hmm. yeah. of much larger. That's very counter to consumerist, individualist culture that so much of North American exported evangelical mush assumes mm -hmm. and then sanctifies, um, and yet it's still not holy. <laughs> Mm -hmm. well, yeah, I don't, I can't really see the world from a, I mean, I am more individualistic than, I mean, I'm a, I'm a hybrid, hmm. right? Um, and I would say that, that many of us who ha are rooted in communities of color in the United States are hybrid people. I mean, I didn't know I was a hybrid until I was a missionary in the Philippines. Right. And I... <laughs> I had a young woman that came to me for counsel that was uh, a nurse and she had fallen in love. She wanted to get married, but she had eight younger siblings that she had to put through school. And so she couldn't get married. Wow. And so I said, well, goodness, you can get married, you know, just figure out a way, like get married and then, you know, give your money to like put money aside. And, and she was staring at me and she said, that's not why I came to see you. I didn't tell you come to come to tell me to go against my conscience. Wow. I told you that I came to see you to tell me how to live with the sacrifice that is necessary. And, and I was sort of like, oh, I get it. I'm an American. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe in individual freedom in ways that are, are bred into me yeah. deeply as an American. And yet I am a very collective person in comparison to the kind of white American way of seeing the world that you're, which I don't even completely understand. Yeah. Right? I don't even completely understand why people don't see the family around us. Don't see the community that we're part of. Don't see the body that we're a member of when yeah. they think I, that's always very strange to me. Um, as, as cult culture is always that Jared, I do a lot of cross-cultural counseling and culture is always that which makes you say um but everyone knows that <laughs> that's culture everyone knows that right? when you're creating cross-cultural marriage counseling people say and when someone says everyone knows that you say see that's the voice of culture that's yeah it, it's it's amazing when uh, i spend time in your nation because no one's ever impressed that i know your history they're like, of course. Mm -hmm. I'm like, everyone knows that. You don't even know the name of my prime minister, and yet I, I can talk through, like, yeah. um, and that's that moment, right? That, yeah. well, of, of course, we're, we're the most <laughs> important story out there. Why wouldn't people know? <laughs> so funny. Yeah. So, so I'm always um, having, and I think it's pretty typical of uh, people of color in the US, is that we're always sort of, in conversations where, where there's something invisible that is constantly visible to us. And so there's sort of, well, what do you do? Do you stay silent? Mm. 
or do you shift the perception of reality of the group that you're in? Um, and, you know, part of what happened a lot during Obama's presidency, um, particularly from my African-American friends, but even for us, you know, is suddenly there was this real emphasis on, on making visible that which has been invisible. Yes. And now there's really this opposite wave of, no, it's not true, it's fake, it's not valid, your way of experiencing the world or seeing the world. And um, it's very sad. Yeah, and I mean, it's a conversation almost for another podcast, but I think part of the fragility that is experienced is what it actually exposes is um, that white culture isn't a culture. It's It's... It's what happens when people give up their own stories, um, their own yeah. histories, their own suffering, their own courage to take part mm. in a majority um, mm. over and against a minority. And that's the, that's the fragility is that what was traded in, um, I have no connection to. I'm completely isolated and don't know who I am. So this very thin veneer of nationalism um, hides this brittle, um, reality, which is is tragic. That people are cut off from their roots. The roots right. don't have sustenance, right? The roots yeah. give us sustenance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I feel like there's this other thing that is happening that to me is very sad. Also, um, I learned it really from most clearly from my daughter because she went to a very progressive um, liberal college, university, which was anti-Christian to the max. And in that university, people were reacting to this um, push to make them invisible by, by sort of aggressive warfare. You know, like our reality is the only reality. Like if a white person came to speak at the campus, they would boo them before they opened their mouths. Even though, of course, many of them are white, young white people, but they, but they didn't identify with that. They, they wanted to be aggressive in their attack. And they thought nonviolence was capitulation and being co-opted. And, you know, Alina, who had been part of the immigration movement, raised in the economic justice movement you know, who had seen these deeply Christian um, immigrant hotel workers or janitors or, or African-American security officers, deeply fueled and shaped and formed and energized by a Christian faith. You know, she was just like, well, you know, no, you just can't. You just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater like that. That's right. It, it only but, happens from people who have no connection and yeah. instead of knowing individuals, you instead know issues. And That's so right. you can have these mass reactions um, because you don't actually, you've never wept with anyone. You've never come alongside. You've, you've never, mm. yeah. Yeah, so it was, so, so you know, the division in our country at this point is not for me like, like Christians fit on either side of it. Mm. You know, we don't actually. Um, we're in this anguish, no man's land, mm. I feel like, if, if, we're, if we're Christians of color particularly. Sure, so yeah, I really we just We just don't fit in those boxes. And, and I don't think life is in, is in the boxes in this war. Yeah. Yeah, um, which in a way is a, um, 
a wonderful transition to your work and witness and the passage that you're going to help us uh, read to turn the world upside down. Would you um, read the passage for us? Sure. Um, Actually, I don't. I have to go over and get my Bible, which is on the other side of the room. (laughs) I actually know it by heart, but it feels to me like it's just more respectful to read it. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's respectful of the Word of God. So, I also like actual physical Bibles rather than devices for the same reason. Me too. Okay. So, this is Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Um, And part of what, what I think that I so love about this passage is that the second and third verse relate to the first verse, right? That what does it mean to to let mutual love continue? Or some versions talk about love among the family, among the brothers and sisters. What does that mean to to live in love in a way that is is real and full? Yeah. And uh, and I think what I love about the second verse then is, of course, the second verse talks about immigrants, right? The yeah. stranger immigrant. But I love the way that it talks about immigrants, that it doesn't talk about immigrants in terms of their need. Yeah. It says that, that they might be angels. An angel in Koine Greek doesn't just mean um, a being, you know, celestial being with wings. It means messenger. That's right. Any yeah. messenger of God sent to bring a blessing. And so I just love the call to see the foreigner, the stranger, the other, as someone who might be bringing a blessing from God. Yeah, it's... It feels um, to me like that's a right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating as well, like um, the translation uh, about family. It's a vision of family which is expansive. It's yeah. a vision of family that um, uh, it isn't simply about one's genes or how it would show up in a DNA test, but in fact a family mm-hmm. that uh, by definition in the Ecclesia is made up of all sorts from yeah. all sides of town, from e- yeah. every class structure. Um, mm. And then what part of what I love too is that one of the big uh, divisions in, in many of our communities is between the immigrant community and the African-American community. Right. That there's a, a, a lot of real tension and conflict. And, uh, but this verse brings us together because one of the biggest sources of anguish of the black community at this moment in history is criminal justice issues. Yes. You know, so there we are together, right? Like, like, like remember those in prison as if you were in prison. So that's a word too, to the immigrant community that, you know, of course we're experiencing right now these terrible detention issues, but even apart from that, like it's the immigrant community can be racist too, you know. So so it's like 
What does it mean, particularly when it comes to people in prison? It's like we don't want to identify with people in prison. We want to be out of prison. We want to be the good people, the good immigrants. And so to say, no, remember, if anybody's in prison, Jesus is in prison, right? That's Matthew 25. Anybody's in prison, Jesus is in prison. And so what does it mean to remember them as if it was you? That you just can't go living your life. If, you're, if there's mutual love between the members of the family, you can't just go living your life as if you're fine when somebody is in prison. Yeah. Um, or somebody, and then, of course, the general comment that comes after that, that incorporates the two, anybody who's mistreated, as if you were mistreated. Yes. That that's what it means to have mutual love between the brothers and sisters, is that anybody, it's like when you're growing up and, I mean, the way that for me and my family, if a family member was hurt, you know, if somebody, you know, if a group of kids were, you know, threatening or extorting or beating up on your brother, your sister, man, you were there, right? (laughs) They they, they weren't going to do that without you being there, right? It's like, I got family. No, you can't do that. So, you know, like I was little, but I had, you know, cousins, right? So, So I think that that image that, you know, anybody, Anybody of the, this expansive family that we're yeah. part of, you know, we all have one heavenly father. So what are the boundaries of that family, right? It's huge. Uh, right? It's not even yeah, just the yeah. church beyond that. Yeah. Um, is like, okay, what does it mean in this family of let mutual love continue between the brothers and sisters? Is that that means that if anybody's mistreated, man, we're there. Mm. You're not alone in it. Mm. I find it so powerful, the work you're doing um, with the Matthew 25 Mm-hmm. Uh, because you you don't merely stop at what in Australia we would frame as refugee rights and what in you in the US refer to as immigration issues, um, but that you're also involved with the prison industrial complex and the realities of incarceration and how you, your work in your vocation is literally breaking down the walls between these two issues and and between these different communities. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, Rene Girard has been a a major influence um, Mm -hmm. on me since my early 20s after going to dinner with um, uh, one of his uh, early students. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I find so fascinating is that those on the bottom, like if you have a a school class, it's the kids who think that they're going to get picked on which will often turn around first and pick on the other kid. While every Hollywood depiction of a high school, it's the cool kids who are the mean kids. When in reality, cool kids are oblivious because they're cool. They don't need to worry. That, that's, not a, that's not something that happens a whole heap. It's usually those who feel so threatened. So if you're the last in in Australia, um, as soon as uh, the Greeks arrived, all the Irish went, hey, <laughs> you know who the problem is? So it's Greeks, only they didn't say Greeks. Yeah. And then when the Italians came at the same time, and then in the 70s when the Vietnamese arrived, it's them who mm. turned around and said, hey, look at, um, or you look today with the Sudanese community uh, growing right. in, in Australia. Would you mm. talk to me a, a, a little about how that works in practice, bringing together coalitions who are working mm. on issues to do with the mass incarceration and privatisation of prisons and mm-hmm. at the same time dealing with whether it be um, dreamers or uh, mm-hmm. 
these children being ripped away from their families that we're seeing in the news in Australia at the moment. How, how do those tensions, how do you hold so, them? Uh, so, I, so I want to say that part of what the work that I've always done around that building that bridge is done on common sacred ground. That's why a, a verse like what we read is so important. Mm. I remember years ago we were bringing together um, African-American and Hispanic pastors at a, at a particularly hot point when we had just done a really large immigration demonstration and there was a lot of um, upset in the black community about that. And so, I mean, it just really put fuel on the fire of the issue. And, and actually there were um, immigrant and black gangs where the kids were killing each other. I think they were sort of expressing the general anger and hostility. So we, we were bringing um, black and brown pastors together and we decided that our verse that we were bringing, that was sort of the banner for our, our network was going to be John 17, 21 and 22, that the world knows that Jesus has come because of the unity of his followers. And so we asked the people who are coming to come prepared to preach on that verse. Now, what was very funny was that something about the way we phrased it meant that a lot of them thought that they were the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> and it meant that they came on time. <laughs> I'm taking notes as as an organizer. I'm like, okay. Like. You know, they came on time and they came like with that mindset, right? That they were going to preach about Christian unity. Wow. And it just created a whole different conversation than any of the conversations that I had been in up to that point. Because then we just put them to preach to each other in pairs, you know, across the line, black and brown. And then, um, and, and then to introduce their new friend to the group. Wow. And that was and that was just so powerful because, you know, the the Hispanic pastors could say, you know, I never really understood the black experience in this country. Why would I? I didn't know anything about it. And then, you know, the black pastors could say, Well, I don't know what I think about immigration reform, but my friend here told me that there were, you know, immigration agents that came into the home Bible study and took away two of the leaders. That's not okay. That's yeah. just not okay. Yeah. Right? So, so there was, um, you could stand on that common ground of our faith. And, you know, the mayor shortly before that had um, tried to bring together the, the two communities without anybody of faith in any leadership role because he thought faith was divisive. Anyhow, but it fell apart very quickly because it was transactional. And when you try to bring people together on something transactional, everyone feels ripped off really quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and po- breaks apart. But if you come together on something that's covenantal, that's very different. Mm. We're together because we are together, because our interests are wrapped up with each other in the deepest sense. Mm. You know, um, because there's, we're the same family. There's and so that transcends it. Yeah. Yeah. So so I don't know how to bring together people not on common sacred ground. But that's that's, and I feel like. You know, the church has to lead the way. And often we're the tailgate, not the, I mean, we're the taillight, not the headlight. But we, right. you know, but we need to lead the way in this one because I don't know any way to bring people together without this belief that in the end your interests and my interests are the same. Yes. Because yeah. we're one family. Yeah. So, you know, and I, in Matthew 25, we're, we're a long ways from actually creating the concrete 
work on the ground on this because um, the work in each of our communities is so painful right now, yep. so hard that we're just really caught up with our own. But we're but because we're part of a larger network together, that at least gives us a frame for knowing that there will be places where we can be intersectional. Hmm. And there's some of it that goes on on sort of an informal level. Like, yes, we're doing this action, please come. And then some of us come and vice versa. Yeah, that's beautiful. Do you know one of my favorite things about this verse? Mm, yeah, tell me. Um, it's, it's the Greek. And, like, I suck at Greek. Like, this is one of the few Greek words that, like, I can remember easily. Uh -huh. um, and in part, it's because the term xenophobia gets used all the time in Australia, mm. like um, xeno, stranger, or other, phobia, fear. Mm. Um, mm. And the Greek word for, for stranger or alien, um, uh, we'd say here in Australia, a refugee, you'd say immigrant um, uh, mm. as the default go-to word. But the word literally in the Greek is philoxenia. That's the word for stranger. Like it's the, the sibling, mm. brotherly, sisterly love for the other. Mm. And uh, like mm. that, that one word in itself will preach, right? Like, yeah, oh yeah. Well, thank how, you. How do we refer to the stranger? Oh, the stranger is um, the other that we love. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. I, I really appreciate that. I didn't know that. I just think that's like phenomenal, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. uh, even in the words that they have to create um, uh, to mm -hmm. to actually name it accurately in light of the cross and resurrection speaks mm -hmm. of how we engage those who are different. And well, that, isn't that at the heart of our faith, that why we were other, totally. while we had separated ourselves from God, that's why Jesus, when Jesus came to us. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, Reverend Alexia, I could do this all night, but it is literally the middle of the night for me. Yeah, um, uh, I, and my day is waiting for me, right? That's right, that's right. So um, I'm sorry I got in the way of your cornflakes or toast or whatever um, you would otherwise have, but I'm very pleased that um, if we do manage to turn this around, uh, you'll be our second guest after Richard Graw and uh, Drew Hart uh, comes up next, um, mm. which will be great. Um, but thank you, not merely for your time now, but for how you've spent your life since <laughs> since finding that Bible on the bus <laughs> and asking and seeking and knocking. Um, uh, I, I have learned so much from you and part of the reason why Love Makes A Way looks the way it does mm -hmm. is because of what I've learned from you from afar. And one of the things I admire most about you is that um, behind the scenes, you've been at it for ages, just faithfully yeah. being at it. La Madrina, right. I, like your, your, um, your consistency, and yet you're still so kind. And uh, I know people who have been at it for a long, long time. Um, uh, I smiled when when you mentioned uh, the LA Catholic worker, who are phenomenal, but we've got friends there who um, that isn't the first word <laughs> you jump to because of what they put up with daily and, and the toll that that's taken. And um, I understand all of that, but um, you still manage to be so kind while facing 
um, well, as the passage that you chose talked about, like the um, seeing the torture as if it was your own, and yet um, you're still <laughs> delightful to be around, and I just appreciate that. <laughs> so thank you. You know, the, the, I always think, Jared, that um, I always relate to when Jesus says, use those uh, eat my body and drink my blood words, right, um, with his disciples for the first time. And they react in a normal human way. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then Jesus says, so are you going to leave me? And Peter says, where would we go? <laughs> And I've always felt that. It's like, you know, when I look out at the world, I see the separation of power and love, and it's untenable. Yes. So where would I go? Yeah. So I feel like like uh, this, this family from all nations and all throughout the world and around the ages, you know, is, is as flawed as any family. Yep. And our families are flawed. Let's not pretend otherwise. Yeah, we're pretty dysfunctional. Yeah. We're pretty dysfunctional. Um, and yet, yet, that's, you know, where would we go? Yeah, which probably means that they <laughs> won't kick us out, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Nowhere to go, you know. So, yeah. But I do, it is funny because I think I do, um, I sort of, uh, I've never really thought of this way, but, It is a temptation for anybody who's experienced depression, I think, to there's either the fight or flight temptation, depending on your personality. My personality is not so much the fight as the flight, you know, like the temptation to run and hide. Um, but, uh, But I really do feel... Um, it's the only way in which I feel entitled. But I think I really do feel like, no, but this is my family. Mm. Like, you can't kick me out. <laughs> this is, I have a right to be here. And I, I think that, that that's such a healing balm in the gospel yes. to anybody who's ever been rejected and oppressed and persecuted and, you know, left behind. Is yeah. that it just says with such power that Jesus came to us where we are and died for us. And no, nobody can kick us out, no matter what they say. We're part of this family. We have a place. Well, I'm thankful to be in the same family as you. Keep doing what you do. Hey, everybody. David here. Look, we hope you have enjoyed this episode with Jared and Alexia. And if you're looking for ways not to just be listeners of the podcast, but doers of the podcast, there are plenty of ways for you to embody the teachings of our Lord and Savior. One of them is the First Home Project over in Perth with our friend Jared McKenna. You may have heard of him. Or our friends over at Love Makes A Way. Or our friends over at We Welcome Refugees. So check those organizations out for ways in which you can get involved. And we are really pumped that so many people have joined this podcast community over at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash inverse. And if you want to continue that conversation and also access all of the extra content, aka where we get to talk to the nerds, Reverend Eleni Paulus of the Uniting Church, and the Venerable Rod Bauer, Archdeacon for Justice in the Anglican Church, and their response to the content in this podcast, you can do that over there on our Patreon. Here's a sneak peek of what that looks like. You know, we can't, we don't want to, so we don't 
imagine that it could be us being tortured or it could be us who are having our kids ripped away. It could be us having to flee our country uh, you know, for fear of persecution. We just can't get our, our heads around it and our, and our empathy gets lost. And I think, I think empathy is a modern word for grace and the, the grace is talked about in a bit further down in the passage Also, Jared's going to be over in the U.S. teaching at the Wild Goose Festival, sharing the main stage with our guest from this episode, Alexia. Um, And if you're there a couple of days earlier, he's also going to be sharing at the Justice Camp. Um, And then Jared's also teaching at C3 Brooklyn on the 15th of July. Also, if you are interested in contemplative prayer and peacemaking, go check out Jared's other podcast, The Parison Podcast, Uh, with Orphanage Founder, Iraq War, Human Shield, Kidnapping Survivor, and Contemplative Prayer Teacher, Donna Mulhern. So thanks for joining us. We will see you next time on the Inverse Podcast.